Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 26th. Today, what President Trump wants to accomplish during his second summit with Kim Jong-un. Michael Cohen begins three days of congressional testimony and the racing pigeons of Iraq. President Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un have arrived in Hanoi for a second round of nuclear negotiations. The stakes are high. And it's hard to tell what deal might be brokered because it wasn't that long ago when President Trump didn't like Kim Jong-un. No one has shown more contempt for other nations and for the well-being of their own people than the depraved regime in North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. Rocket Man should have been handled a long time ago. But then that started to change after the first summit with Kim last summer. I have a very, very good relationship with Kim Jong-un. Very, very good. I was really being tough, and so was he. And we would go back and forth, and then we fell in love. Okay? No, really. He wrote me beautiful letters, and they're great letters. We fell in love. At the end of that last summit, the two countries came up with a 400-word agreement vaguely reaffirming their commitment to denuclearization. President Trump said he's hoping to build on those negotiations this week. I think that North Korea and Chairman Kim have some very positive things in mind, and we'll soon find out. Simon Denier is the Post's bureau chief for Japan and the Koreas, and he's in Hanoi reporting on the summit. We haven't yet seen Kim Jong-un. I have hung out in the street quite a bit, trying to catch a glimpse. I saw... The motorcade drive past, but the windows were firmly tinted. Since that last meeting in Singapore, North Korea has stopped their nuclear and missile tests. But Simon says that essentially there has been little substantial movement toward denuclearization. We do have a situation now where the two sides are talking and the North Koreans aren't testing. But the next step is actually to get them to stop producing nuclear weapons and missiles and then get them to start to dismantle the stockpile that they've got. So if that's the goal for the U.S., to get a clear and concrete commitment from North Korea that they are willing to denuclearize, what would that concrete commitment look like? Probably the first step would be the Yongbyon nuclear research complex, which is really the heart of their nuclear industry. It has three nuclear reactors, one of which is the main nuclear reactor which produces all of North Korea's plutonium for nuclear weapons. We've been down the road before of trying to close that that reactor down. It's then afterwards, inspectors have been in, afterwards it's restarted. 
So we need to close that reactor down permanently. There's also facilities where they enrich uranium for weapons. Those need to be declared because some of them are not publicly acknowledged and then closed down. So that would be the first step towards starting that process of actually denuclearizing. What would the U.S. be willing to trade in exchange for getting some kind of commitment like that? What North Korea wants above all else is sanctions relief. That's what he's asking for. What the U.S. is offering is a bit different. It's offering two things which North Korea does value. Uh, One would be an end of war declaration, a declaration that the Korean War, which ended in a ceasefire, not a peace treaty, a declaration that that war is over, a signal that relations between the two countries are not hostile anymore. The second thing would be the opening of liaison offices in each other's capitals. That's not diplomatic recognition, but it's the first step towards diplomatic recognition. But the third thing is sanctions relief. And that's the question. How much sanctions relief is the US prepared to offer? How much will the North Koreans demand? Will they be able to meet in the middle? Well, uh, sanctions relief in particular seems like a pretty controversial prospect because I think that there is a very real criticism to be made of offering sanctions relief to North Korea if they haven't actually done anything to commit themselves to denuclearization. Absolutely. That's that's absolutely right. Secretary of State Pompeo you know, said it again at the weekend. The United Nations Security Council sanctions have to remain in place until North Korea fully and finally denuclearizes. The, the core sanctions, the, the core UN Security Council resolution sanctions, we've said consistently, full, verified denuclearization, that's the standard for relieving those sanctions. That policy has not changed since, um, I think, since the day President Trump took office. If you relax the UN Security Council sanctions, it's going to be almost impossible to put them back on again. It's very difficult because Russia and China probably wouldn't play ball a second time and allow them to be ratcheted back up again. So if you ease them, it's kind of a one-way street. The US is going to be very reluctant to ease those UN Security Council sanctions. Why is the summit happening in Vietnam? Hmm. Vietnam, we're told suggested itself as a venue quite early on in the process, actually put itself forward. It has, you know, Vietnam has a particular place in Asia right now where it it doesn't want to be sucked too deeply into anybody's camp. So for to play a sort of mediating role kind of fits in, if you like, mm-hmm. with Vietnam's external philosophy. For the US, Vietnam is a really attractive option because it wants to convince North Korea to go down Vietnam's path, the path of economic reform, the path of opening up to the global economy. The North Koreans, well, you know, Vietnam was, was uh, North Korea was the third country to, to give Vietnam diplomatic relations in 1950. They do have some historical past. Their relations have gone through quite a lot of ups and downs over the years, but it is a fellow communist country. And, and I think that probably is not irrelevant when North Korea saw, you know, was looking at venues, they saw someone they could they could at least trust and understand to some degree. So if this summit concludes, but there's no agreement, and if negotiations fail, or if, if either President Trump or Kim Jong-un come out of this feeling dissatisfied with what went down, then what happens next? 
what we're hearing is that the negotiations are really going up to the wire. They're really going down to the to the last minute. Neither side wants this process to end. They will, I am sure, come out of this publicly saying that it's been a success and that they've had a great conversation and they are on the same page. But if they don't actually come up with concrete agreements, I think the criticism from outside will grow and that does gradually become a problem. Thank you so much, Simon. Pleasure. Simon Denier is the Post's bureau chief for Japan and the Koreas. President Trump and Kim Jong-un are expected to have dinner together on Wednesday evening before their formal talks on Thursday. It's kind of Michael Cohen week on the Hill. I mean, it's it's like unmissable, I think. <laughs> Michael Cohen, the president's former lawyer and fixer, is testifying before Congress this week. And on Wednesday, that testimony will be open to the public and televised. Investigative reporter Roslyn Helderman will be covering it. So I think that this has the possibility of being sort of a seminal moment for the Trump administration. Tuesday, he is testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee. That's a closed-door hearing. Thursday, he's testifying before the House Intelligence Committee. That's also closed-door. But Wednesday is the main event. Wednesday, he will be testifying publicly in front of the House Oversight Committee. Now, there are some curbs and limits on what he has said he will speak about publicly. He's not supposed to be getting deep into matters related to the Russia investigation because the special counsel's investigation is ongoing. But there's a lot of room of other stuff he could talk about. Like what? He can talk all about the hush money that was paid to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal before the 2016 election. You know, Michael Cohen has pled guilty to felonies related to those payments, and he has said in court that he was directed to undertake that criminal activity by the president of the United States. So we're going to hear him lay out exactly how all that went down. We'll also potentially hear more about other interactions with the National Enquirer, other instances where Donald Trump or he played a role in National Enquirer coverage, potentially other women, other allegations that were made against the president that he was asked to keep quiet. You know, someone close to Cohen has been out there saying that he's going to be talking about the president's lies, cheating, and racism. I mean, that's pretty stunning. Whoa. And the racism part is particularly interesting to me. What what do we know about that? Yeah, we don't know a lot of details yet, but we have been told that he is going to tell personal anecdotes about his time with President Trump and his observations of the president's racism. So, you know, he did know the man very well. He worked with him for 10 years. And I think that's going to be something we're going to be talking about at the end of tomorrow. So as people are talking about uh, this testimony that Michael Cohen is going to be giving, a lot of people are comparing him to John Dean, who people might remember as the White House lawyer who testified during Watergate to talk about all of President Nixon's misdeeds. But for Michael Cohen, he is much less credible, I think, to a lot of people than a White House attorney would have been. To what extent do you think that people will actually believe what he's saying? 
Well, I mean, it is true that Michael Cohen is a confessed, convicted liar. So, you know, you can certainly expect to hear a lot about that from the Republicans who are going to be trying to draw blood from him, essentially. But I think we expect him to testify for many hours. There has been some suggestion that he might bring documents with him, financial documents, supposedly. So, you know, documents potentially from the president or about the president or apparently we don't really know. But, uh, you know, we do know that Michael Cohen and worked for him for 10 years. And so it's not inconceivable that he might have quite a lot of paperwork left over from that time period. So, you know, he might be able to bring documents to prove what he is saying. You know, I think the other thing is he is not necessarily known to be the most stable person. He's kind of a hothead. And so I think Republicans will try really hard to provoke him and and they may succeed. Um, so even Michael Cohen in meltdown would be quite a moment to watch on national television. But if he can kind of keep his wits about him and tell a consistent story, you know, not let them poke holes in his narrative, you know, we'll we'll get to watch in real time whether he just gives off the appearance of being a credible witness or not. You mentioned that one thing that he won't be asked about in too much detail will be things related to the Russia investigation. But that seems like a a whole, a large swath of questions that are now ruled out because they're a part of the Russia investigation. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see how that plays out. I mean, I think we do anticipate that he'll be asked about the BuzzFeed story, the one that said that the president directed him to lie to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow project. The special counsel has said that that story was not correct. I do think he'll be asked about that. And once he sort of starts down the road of answering some questions about Russia, I don't know how he stops other questions. But, you know, we'll see how it plays out. It is possible his lawyer will jump in at various points and say, you know, we, we have an agreement with the committee not to talk about Russia. That's not a question, you know, Mr. Cohen's going to address. You've been covering the Mueller investigation and to some extent Michael Cohen for quite a while now. If you were up there asking questions, what's the question that you would ask Michael Cohen? So, I mean, I'm I'm a real dork, so I would, like, pull out all the documents and say, uh, you know, you told the court that your payments on about Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal were approved by two executives at the Trump Organization. Name them. Who are those executives? What did they know about these payments? But, I mean, ultimately, when you really get down to it, um, the question that he needs to be asked about each of these different subjects is the classic Watergate question, right, which is, what did the president know and when did he know it. Thank you so much, Roz. Thank you for having me. Rosalind Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing about pigeon racing in Iraq. These are birds that fly hundreds of miles in one race after their owners have spent thousands of dollars and many months getting them into tip-top shape. People are breeding them, raising them, and selling them in order to participate in these long-distance pigeon races. And that's when I became fascinated with it and almost obsessed with the idea that I need to do this story at some point. Tamar El-Gobashi is the Post's Baghdad bureau chief. For two years, he's been reporting on these racing pigeons and the people who care for them. Some of these men do it for the glory. And some of them just do it for a little bit of cash at the end of the race. The subculture around elite pigeon racing is really fascinating. It takes extreme dedication, takes a lot of money, and someone who's really competitive as well. 
And in Iraqi society, it's also a liability. Iraq has this funny little reputation around people who raise pigeons. Apparently, people who raise pigeons tend to be scoundrels, people who cannot be trusted, people who, in some cases, they're considered perverts because they have these pigeon lofts high up on uh, the roofs of their houses. And the reputation is that maybe they're spying on their neighbors or trying to catch a glimpse of the woman next door hanging laundry. So they, they just have this, it's embedded in the culture, or the popular culture, that they're people you don't want to know. But what I discovered is that the people who do the pigeon racing are often very well-to-do men, mostly. I did not meet a single woman who was into this hobby. They range from medical doctors to professors to high-ranking military officials and high-ranking police officials. Tamar says that despite the time and money that it costs, racing pigeons is a way to make sense of life. What people tell me is that the draw for them is this is one of the few activities they can pursue in a country like Iraq, in a region like the Middle East, in which they feel like they're in total control. You know, there's a lot of variables, there's a lot of government dysfunction, and just there's so many random events that can just change the course of your life. This is just somewhere where they feel like they are in complete control. Tamar El-Gobashi is the Baghdad bureau chief for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. I'll be out for the next week, and Post investigative reporter Kimbriel Kelly will be filling in as host of the show. She'll be here tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.